The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, are you, not yet, you are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much and praise you for the grace that you abundantly, abundantly supply. <clears throat> we thank you for the hearts that you've given us to desire you. We ask you for the ears to hear the word that will be proclaimed today. We thank you, Lord, for all the strength that you provide through the tough, tough weeks that we face and ask you for the strength to reflect in your light into this dark world. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it, brother. Take it. All right, so uh, this is another one of those gut check Sundays. Um, so if you were he not here last week, let me catch you up. Jesus calls them uh, sons of the devil. Uh, and they had just said to him that uh, they were followers of him, that they believed in him. And yet he challenges them and says, no, if, if, you, if you really believe, you will follow me. You will abide in my word. You will find this beautiful freedom that comes with knowing the truth. And they're basically, um, to catch you up in this conversation, uh, challenge him. And they say, we don't really need you. We have Abraham. And Jesus continues to challenge them in their uh, professed belief. It's a great thing for us to be reminded that we live in a culture that professes belief in Jesus, but may not, may not follow Jesus. It's also a great reminder uh, for us to know that Jesus doesn't just take them at their word. He challenges them and he calls them to a following faith. Um, and it reminds me of kind of where I grew up and how I grew up. Let me ask you this question as we get started. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? The, the, the Christian faith was modeled for you, like your parents discipled you, um, and, and you had this, this somewhat like Christian rhythm where you went to a church, they talked about Jesus, and you actually may have seen, like you look at your parents and you go, man, they modeled this thing out well. Would you raise your hand? Yes. Okay, wow, more than I anticipated. What a beautiful heritage that many of you have. And how many of you uh, like me, I should have not raised my hand. How many of you, like me, like, oh, I went to church, but don't know that it was modeled out for me all that much behind, besides like Sunday morning? Um, and so 
uh, like what would it, how many of you kind of look at your, your family, your family of origin as a mission field, feels like a minefield, but it's a mission field. How many of you would be, that would be you. That's my hand. I'll raise my hand twice on that one. They cancel out the other one. Um, okay. So, so I just wondered kind of where we are, because if you're anything like me, I have a little bit of guilt when it comes to my family. And the guilt is I haven't shared the gospel with them, with some of them. They know where I stand, but I want to know where they stand, and I want to know that they're following Jesus, or at least they've thought about Jesus in a while. I haven't shared the gospel with them, particularly with uh, some individuals in my family, because a long time ago, I shared the gospel with them. It went south in a hurry, and I went, well, the Lord, Lord, this is, uh, you're going to have to find somebody else to do this. I mean, after all, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, and so I'll just do that, and, and I, but I felt guilty about walking away. I felt guilty about just kind of leaving them to figure it out, leaving them and really truly entrusting them into the Spirit's care that the Holy Spirit is going to do. If the Lord wants them, he's going to get them. That's what I know. But I felt still guilty about walking away. And so, like, the question comes up, how much is enough? How much until we go, you know what, like, we love you, but we love you so much that we're not going to keep talking about this. We're going to be able to enjoy life. Um, Like, I just spent this beautiful time in Colorado with my family. Many of them don't don't follow Jesus. They all profess to know Jesus, but don't follow Jesus. And so I could have spent those four or five days like really pressing in, or I could enjoy the trip because it's really going to be one or the other. And there's a little bit of guilt that goes, man, maybe I should have pressed in a little bit more. Jesus is going to model for us that there are times where it's just enough is enough. And we shall not cast our pearls before swine. That same Jesus that said this is the same Jesus that stood before the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler says, what what would I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus challenges him in the one way he needs to be challenged. And he would not do the one thing that Jesus said to do. And he walks away. And so does Jesus. Like, I don't find a whole lot of second chances in the gospels. And here's what I mean by that. People come to faith. Nicodemus, he has this great conversation with Jesus in John 3, and then we pick up, and all of a sudden, he is defending Jesus. We know somewhere from John 3 to about John 7, there's something that happened in Nicodemus. We see that. We see the evidence of it. For people like the rich young ruler, Jesus just walks away. For these guys today, these ones that said, we believe you, Jesus, he simply is done. He models out for us, like, when is enough? enough because frighteningly he walks away and he leaves them in their sin the savior of the world leaves them in their sins where he had just said in verse 24 they will die i don't know about you i feel guilty sometimes when i walk away because i want them to come to know the lord and yet I forget in those moments when I feel guilty that there's someone that wants them to come to know the Lord even more, and it is the Lord himself. He wants their faith even more than me. And I would imagine that when Jesus, we find this Jesus face-to-face with his countrymen, his kinsmen, his brothers, his sisters, his Jewish uh, heritage people, I would imagine he wants them to come to faith. And yet he stands firm. He stands steady in the face of great disappointment, the face of great pain that 
that he knew what was in the heart of humanity. He knew that he had to go first to the Jewish people and that they would reject him. He knew that he could set them free from the slavery of the atonement system, of of what the law was really brought to do, to babysit them like a speed limit sign. It's just a babysitter until the true and better Messiah comes to fulfill the law so they might be free. He knows all this. He knows what's in their hearts. And at some point, he just says, enough's enough. I've been captured by the idea that Jesus walks away from people lately. It's a fascinating part of Jesus. And yet Jesus, in this, he is steady in the face of deep pain. He is absolutely steady in what he's up to. See, these Jewish believers turn to name-calling. As soon as Tim started out, uh, this passage starts today. It's kind of in the middle of this conversation, but it starts out. He says, the Jews answered him, well, were you not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? I'm sorry. Did they just say Jesus had a demon? Yes, they did. Face to face, right to his eyeballs. Oh, okay. So you think that we're of the devil. Oh, now we know you're, you're demonic. But they they throw this other little racial slur in, and they go, oh, you're a Samaritan. You're not even Jewish. See, to them, what they saw Samaritans as is this, quote-unquote, half-breed. They weren't pure. What happened was when Israel got dragged into exile into Babylon, they married the Babylonians, the Jewish men and women, intermarried. And then all of a sudden, the, the pure Jews kicked them out of the worship circle. There's no place for them in the temple. And so they had to, as social outcasts will do, figure out their own way and their ingenious uh, pursuit of trying to worship God. And so they couldn't get into the temple. And so they created their own means of worship. And so that to the pure Jews was demonic. Not to mention that it was unheard of for a Jew to stand in front of other Jews and go, you're not really okay. You say you're okay, but you're not really okay with God. So Jesus does not get into the mud with them. Instead, uh, he simply awakens them from their spiritual slumber. He doesn't go in to defend anymore his claims about being the truth, his claims about being truly who he is. He doesn't go in to try and convince them of, of any more spiritual truths like I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will never walk, walk in darkness. He, he's done with this particular group. And so instead, he starts to appeal to something greater. Verse 49, Jesus says to them, I do not have a demon. That's the only thing he really says to defend himself against their claim that he's he's got a demon. I don't have a demon, and I'm not going to prove it to you. But I honor my father, and you, you dishonor me. And what he's basically about to say is, and when you dishonor me, you dishonor the judge of the entire world world who is my father. So are you sure you want to keep doing this? He says, yet I do not seek my own glory. I'm not going to get here and defend myself to you anymore. Instead, I have a defender. I have one who will seek after my glory, and it is my father. He goes on to say, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and it ain't you, and it's not me. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Skip down to 54 with me. He goes on to appeal to his relationship to his father. And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, 
of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Jesus is saying to them, see, I see that you're getting desperate here with the name calling, with the whole, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon, and it won't change the fact that my father seeks to honor me. You reject me, big deal. I have the acceptance of my father. And not only do I have the acceptance of my father, I have his continual pursuit of my glory. What does it look like to continual pursue the glory of of another. When I grew up, uh, I'm still growing up in many ways, but when I was growing up, uh, I would go to my dad's house on the weekends. I grew up in a divorced home, and so I would go to my dad's house on the weekends, and I've told you a little bit about his parties. And one of the things about his parties is that he would have a smoker in the backyard, uh, and so like he literally converted his chimney into a barbecue pit. That's how uh, serious he was about this. Uh, Eddie Cruzel and my dad would be really good friends. And so uh, he, would, he would have this smoker, and he would make this beautiful barbecue. And at the end of it all, after we got done cleaning up and getting everybody ready, he would kind of pull me in outside, and he'd go, hey, help me out with this barbecue sauce real quick. And I would add like an orange and like a packet of like, or like some brown sugar to it, and I would stir it, okay? That's all I would do. And then the party would happen, and everybody loved his barbecue sauce. Everyone. He, pre- 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 he prepared it. He did all the things. I don't even know what he did to it. All I know is that I had a little sugar, I had an orange peel or two, and I stirred it. And everybody loved his barbecue sauce. And when everybody would compliment on the barbecue sauce, what would my dad do? Lance made that sauce. Lance made that sauce. And it it made me feel like my dad was proud of me. Now, I had some superficial addition to what he had already done. And yet he was seeking my glory. He was seeking to give me credit. He was deferring what was rightly his, and he, he sought mine. And he propped me up in front of his friends, and he propped me up in front of his friends' kids. And there was this moment, as a kid, I was like, I didn't do anything, but I'm not about to say anything. Like, I'm not going to be like, well, actually, Dad, you did. I'm like, yeah, man, worked hard over that. Woo! All day. Though my father sought to glorify me through superficial means, the father seeks to glorify the son through supernatural means. He seeks, he finds ways to look at Jesus and go, it's all him. It's all about him. The father, the father looks at Jesus and says, it's all about him. And it's a clue to all of us to go, it's all about him. No matter what little superficial, what you might seem as superficial ingredients he's added to our life, it's all about him. That's what it looks like to seek the the son's glory from the father. And we know this because the father actually spoke from heaven on two occasions. One at Jesus' baptism. Okay, I want you to just hear this. One at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3. Jesus gets up from the water. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Another time in Luke 9 at the transfiguration, a voice from heaven speaks to them that are there. This is my son, my chosen son. Listen to him. What I want you to see here is that Jesus is not bothered by their accusations because he is on a mission. He's not bothered by their rejection because he has a greater calling. 
Matthew 3, he gets this voice from heaven. What happens in Matthew 4? The tempter comes. Satan comes. If you are the son of God. It goes right after his identity. Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration happens. They're on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. What happens at the end of Luke 9? The writer says that Jesus was, had set his face towards Jerusalem. It is his way of saying he's ready to go. See, right after the affirmation of the voice of the Father, does Jesus stand ready against his foes? How about you? Can you stand against your foe? Perhaps if not, if you, have, if you have trouble dealing with someone gossiping about you, if you have trouble dealing with someone slandering your name, if you have trouble dealing with the reality that your boss just will not give you credit, you have trouble dealing with whatever happens on social media, I mean, don't even get me started on that. Like in our family, I don't know if this is how it is in your family, but in our family, I told you so is a cuss word, like we don't go there. No? Am I the only one that's like, I told you so, that just does not fly for us? Because it's rooted in pride and in self-glory. So the only one that gets away with it is our three-year-old. We've got to fix it. I don't know how. Because he'll say something, and then, like, all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, I told you. I told you. I, okay, man. Like, you're the only one that can get away with that. When you turn four, I told you he's going to die. Because it's rooted in, in seeking glory for yourself. When we go to try and defend against gossip and slander and misunderstanding and over-explain this, that, or the other, are we not then trying to be our own justifier? Have we not forgotten that, our, our, that Jesus is our justifier? Not just vertically, but horizontally. I don't need to go and defend myself. I don't need to go and seek clarification. Now, if I've done something wrong, you seek clarification. I'm not saying that. But at some point, you stand in the justification that you have before God. It is full acceptance, not because of your performance, but because of the performance of Jesus. And that makes you ready to not only take risks for Jesus, but just be okay with the subtleties of life that in this fallen world, every tone that you have, every facial expression that you have won't be, won't be properly identified or interpreted. We stand in the justification of Jesus. We stand ready in our identity with God because that's the only way we're actually going to be able to do anything of significance. When we look at Jesus, he stands before them and he goes, I got a relationship with my dad that you have no idea about. My identity is firmly rooted in him. You can call me a Samaritan if you want. You can call me demonic if you want. Matter of fact, I know what's about to happen. You're about to try and kill me. That doesn't bother me either. It doesn't sway me from my mission at all. Jesus was rooted in his identity. It allowed him to make the greatest invitation the world has ever known. And that great invitation, that Jesus' greatest promise for all of us is eternal life. And I don't know about you, but like this week for me, this sermon uh, particularly for me, which is really difficult. And, I, and one of the reasons why I thought it was difficult is like, the greatest promise in the world is eternal life. And it just somehow just gets really familiar. And all of a sudden, it just doesn't, it, start, it starts to let, matter less and less because you don't really capture exactly what's going on when Jesus is standing in the face of those 
who have called him Samaritan and a demon. And he goes, but if you abide in my word, you will never see death. Never see death. You and I will decay. Lord knows we are decaying. We will, we will face physical decay. This world is broken and fallen, and it is dying slowly, and so are we. Good news here on a Sunday morning. We will eventually pass, like physically, and yet John 11 talks about how, like, though you may physically die, you will not really die. There is a, there's a promise here of eternal life. There is not one iota of a second where we won't live because we belong to Jesus. But it's only if we belong to Jesus. And eternal life here is at stake. In a hypersensitive society, many, many of us can't even handle someone looking at us wrong. We have this wrong uh, facial expression, much less someone calling us a name. What would we do if someone had, called, uh, had told us that we have a demon? Jesus offers eternal life. You will not taste death. You will not see death. So yesterday we went to Torchy's Tacos, which is like becoming a weekend tradition for us. I don't think I can afford it for much longer, but we're going to do it. It's great. Um, and, and like the, if you've ever had the queso there, you ain't having queso anywhere else. That's all I'm saying, all right? Some of y'all are going to be like, blasphemy, you have a demon for saying that? Okay, I don't care. I'm just rooted in this conviction that at Torchy's Tacos, you will find the greatest queso on the planet. So I believe that. My wife believes that. Uh, if you dig like deep enough and you're first there, you'll find this little hidden avocado. It's a little hidden gem down there at the bottom that you can dig out and enjoy. So, but I will do that. But my daughter Ellie yesterday is like taking chips and like, you know how kids will do this? They're like, oh yeah, I want some of that. That looks good. And they just like, boop. And then they toss it in their mouth. and like, oh yeah, that's, re that's like really good. I'm like, girl, you can't even taste that. You like, you barely touch the surface of the queso. How is this something you're enjoying? Oh, I love it. It made me realize that, that, that we won't even be able to taste it. Like death won't be something that we partake of at all. There will never be a moment where you aren't alive if you belong to Jesus. You will never taste it. It won't happen. And then here's the greatest part about this. Not only is this great promise there, but Jesus makes it clear how to actually attain this eternal life. He makes it clear how we can actually like, like taste and see that the Lord is good and enjoy this eternal life, not only for forever, but for here and for now. And it's, so, it's a message he's been saying for chapters now if we would just pay attention. So I'm going to rapid fire you right quick. I'm going to rapid fire you once. I'm going to rapid fire you again with some scripture. It'll come on the screen. If you're taking notes, just jot them down. Look at them later. But I want you to understand a couple of things before I rapid fire you. Look at verse 51. Because this is the promise that really makes them angry. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then they say this, the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. What is it about this that created such a problem? Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets died, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. 
Jesus is going to essentially say something here at the end that we'll unpack, but he starts to unpack for them the way that anyone can, take, can never taste death. I would imagine that's all of us in this room. I would imagine that's all of our neighbors. They don't want to taste death. If you look around, we are in a culture that denies the reality of death. However we do that, we, 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 we plastic surgery ourselves. We, 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 we seek like, medical attention at the drop of a hat. Like, there's all kinds of ways that we just deny the reality of death. That's a lot of what, actually, I think the medical uh, community is, 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 is pushing towards us, not to mention uh, working out and diets and everything else, and I'm all for the medical community, so if you're a nurse here, I'm not bashing you. But I do think that there's this reality in this culture that is driven by fear that, oh, one day you're going to die, and if you do these things, you'll extend that out. Maybe. Jesus says, if you just keep my word. This word keep is to observe something with sustained attention. I want you to hear that. To observe something with sustained attention. If you would sustain your attention on my word, if you would fully experience it, if you would keep it, if you would cherish it, if you would love it, with sustained attention, like a newborn, like you go in the middle of the night and you just, you still breathing? Sustained attention. You got a monitor on it. You got a video on it. You got to make sure that everything's good. Sustained attention. Jesus has been saying this for chapters. John 5, 24 through 29 says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whomever hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man." Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Life, judgment, doesn't say death, because there's a judgment there where someone will be in death forever. He says, if you've done good, you go to life. If you've done evil, you go to judgment. It might sound like this is a salvation by works, but no. Jesus will continue in John 6, this continual conversation. He's revealing to us. Then then the crowd said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? I want the, the resurrection of life. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You want to know what the work of God is? That you believe in him who he, the Father, has sent. Our greatest work is faith. Our only work is faith by the grace of God. This is true, truly is a gift. We believe, but truly Christian faith, truly Christian trust, truly Christian belief has never been just our hearts, but our minds and our hands and our feet as well. Here's the rapid fire part. You ready? John 7, 24. It's always been this way that we would be a people who get to work after God has worked for us. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You got to do something. 
John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You got to do something. If you love me, if you say you believe, there's an abiding in his word that says we got to do some things, not to earn salvation, but because salvation was given to us freely. This is not about legalism. This is about freedom. And the freedom we have is to enjoy him, to find our joy in a simple obedience to Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is a gift from God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Don't hear me say, don't hear Jesus say that they, they, all of a sudden we have to work to get salvation. We have no boasting before God. It's all the work from him. But he says, end of nine, not as a result of works, but so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works which God prepared before him, a.k.a. you don't have to worry about what you're going to do. Just be faithful and he'll show you. He's prepared, he's prepared these works before the foundation of the world for you, for you, Chris, for you, Brett, for you, John. I mean, we continue on. For you, Kristen, for you, Jenny. And on and on, for all of us that, that claim Christ, that have been saved by grace, he has prepared us for us good works to do. And because we forget, we need, we need not so gentle reminders from the brother of the Messiah, Jesus, uh, James. Ever read James? It's, it's going to be like just boxing gloves. You're going into nine round. I've never been, but if they, if they spar with you, maybe it's like I'm sitting over there and I'm looking at Oscar. He does Krav Maga. I don't even know what that is, but I know they spar because I see it on Facebook and it looks like something that I just break something with. So I'm just going to pass. Like this is James, right? He's going to spar with you a little bit. And he says this in James 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. So deceiving yourself. James 2, 17. So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. We say a lot that this place is for Jesus and for good. Is it? Do we seek the good of our neighbor? Do we put aside our own preferences, our own schedules, our own energy? Do we labor with the energy that God has given us to schedule out in our time, to put some margin in our life of just inefficiency? It's kind of like budgeting out vacation time in your budget. Like you got to do that as a family in a way. We budget out in our time to make sure that we, we would truly seek the good of our world, the renewal of this place, that God is so longing to make this place new and he wants to use us. Do we seek the good? And if we don't, maybe we've forgotten. And so we need to do what Jesus says, and that is to keep his word. Do we treasure it? Do we look at the word of God like a treasure in a field? Proverbs 2 says this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Do you want understanding? Do you want wisdom? Do you want to actually see the no and, and, and fear God? Verse 4, if you seek it like silver, my word, if you seek my word like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Don't we want to know God? Don't we want to worship God? Will we, will we seek after his word like silver in a field and go treasure hunting for whatever it is that we need to know about God? Will that be what we're known for? 
Do you see God's word as a treasure after which to hunt? Or is it a burden to be avoided? Do you see God's word as God himself revealing himself to you? Or have you believed that is a lie? Or have you believed the lie that it is just man's word that has been corrupted over time? If that's you, I want to have lunch with you. And, and, and we'll sit down, we'll look at the actual evidence. Not a Netflix documentary, like the actual evidence as to why this is the most reliable document, most truthful document that has ever been produced in the history of the world. And that is not an understatement. I almost went into some evidence right there. No, defer, we're going to lunch. Is it something that you just simply don't have time for, or, are you some, or is it something that you are making time for? Did you treat it like an instruction manual where you kind of put together your life, or are you treating it like love letters that you just want to keep reading because there's something else in there that's a treasure that reveals the heart of God, and His care for you, His pursuit of you, His wooing you? C.S. Lewis says this, I think it's quite important, something that somebody put out on social media, so it's not all bad. C.S. Lewis says this, I'll tell you that because I didn't go find this, this found me, I think it's important. It says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Are we a people that believes that? Are we a people looks at Jesus and says, who are you to be saying all these things? Because here's what happens at the end. You've never thought that Jesus claimed to be God. John 8, 58 will give you the clue. See, Jesus is the great I am, and he says this in verse 58. Those of you who have doubts about who he is, those of you that wonder if his promises are true, or if you should actually take them to heart, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Weird grammatical statement in the original language. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. Before all this, I used to hang out back there. No, he is clearly going back to Exodus 3.14, where Moses is asking, who shall I say sent me when I'm, sending, when I'm being sent out to rescue your people? And the God of all creation says, I am who I am. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And here's how we know he was claiming to be God. Verse 59. They're done. They're done talking. They're done, they're done reasoning with Jesus. They pick up stones to throw at him. And they try to kill him. That's when you know Jesus said something profound in a culture that they know exactly what he's up to. He's identifying himself as the great I am, and they want to kill him for it. And in the face of such death, he offers us the greatest promise of eternal life. And in that promise, and in that offer, we must respond. We must respond. See, this, verse 59, they had a response but I just wonder if we truly believe these claims that Jesus is making. Do we believe that our eternal lives are at stake by how we believe who Jesus is? Who said that we must abide in his word, keep his word as a sign of our eternal life? Do we believe that the stakes are that high? Eternity is at stake. 
that we would show what we know about Jesus by how we live? Or will we walk away because we prefer our own life? And on our way to getting our own way, we seek our own glory. And when we seek our own glory, isn't it just a little bit at a time that we are killing Jesus' influence in our own hearts? Will we be a people who are known for abiding and keeping God's word no matter the cost? And here's what I want to say to us, church. No one can own your faith for you. If you want to grow in the Lord, man, pick up the word If you don't know where to start, text a friend. Come talk to me. Start in Mark. Great little simple book, 16 chapters. You can knock that out in a month. Truly, like every other day, just just reading a chapter. If you don't know where to start, find somebody that will help you, but there is no one that can do this for you. I think like the Camp Gladiator thing that's like popped up in our culture, I was telling the guys this earlier, it's amazing to me. Because here's what they've sold everyone on, and I've gone to Camp Gladiator, so I'm not, I actually like it. But here's what they, yeah, Heather knows. So here's what they, here's what, Shauna's the one that dragged me out there at 4.30 in the morning. I hated her for a little bit, but we did it. Uh, so nonetheless, but like, so, so you go to Camp Gladiator, you don't pay for anything. Like, there's, there's no lights, barely. Uh, there's no, it's a parking lot. There's no AC. There might be a cone that you can, like, touch. You bring your own mat, you bring your own water. There's not anything that you're paying for. It's almost as expensive as like a gym membership where you can go swimming or like racquetball or, or something. That what, they've, what they've sold you on is that there's a community there that will help. But you know what? They're not calling you to wake you up. You've got to set your own alarm clock. You've got to get out there. You've got to want it by, on your own. And you've got to actually show up and then they'll help you do the work. I will tell you, this is the model of our church. We so value your spiritual life that we leave it in your hands to own. We don't take it from you. We don't hijack it from you. We want you to own it. We'll help you along the way. There is no substitute for your ownership of your own Bible reading, of your own prayer, of your own seeking, the welfare of your city. We can't do this for you. We'll do it with you. I just wonder if that's going to be us as a church in this next season for us. As we dig back in, and I can already start to see the alarm clock about to hit me for 5.45 or 6 o'clock to wake up to get my kids ready. It's already in my mind. As we start to prep for that, we keep the words of Jesus because our eternal destiny is at stake. Not so much. I'm not saying work for eternity. Don't hear that. Said, I'm saying, God has so worked for you, what will be our response? To love him, to obey him, to seek him, to worship him. He is the God of the universe. Surely he's worth it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would fully participate. Pray that we would fully participate in you, in, in the God who is renewing this world, renewing our hearts, making us alive. I pray, Lord, that when you come so near to us that we don't stand before you and deny you who you really are, but when you come near us, we would worship you and go, oh, Lord, whatever it is that you have us do next, I'm for it. You want me to invite my neighbor over for dinner? I'm for it. You want me to disciple my kids early in the morning? I'm for it. You want me to just put away whatever money that needs to be put away for camp or whatever? I'm for it. I'm going to go down and, 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 and hang out with orphans on a Saturday at DePelchin. I'm for that. 
Whatever the cost is. Okay, there's training. Okay, there's an application. Okay, there's waiting. Let's do that. I want to go down to attack poverty and friends of North Richmond, and I want to spend my Saturday, the only day that I can rest, and just go do that. I want to walk my neighborhood and pray for my neighbors. I'll do that. You want to get up early and just go meet with you? Go see a, a hint of your glory through the written word of God that the Holy Spirit may convict me and counsel me? I'll do that. May we joyfully participate in the retelling of the beautiful story of God's redemption of sinners again and again to our own hearts, to one another, and to the world around us. Help us. And as we respond today, guide us, help us understand who you are, who we are, what great promises you have held out for your children.